0: Now we have Tina Nanyangui, who is until recently the coordinator of the Debt, Aid, and Trade program of the Jesuit Center for Theological Research. Tina has worked as a program officer for this program at the Jesuit Center. Uh, she was responsible for crafting and designing research studies and uh, research tools and educational materials on this in this project. Later, she became coordinator of the program. Uh, she has a special um, expertise in analyzing Zambia's national budgets and presenting the Jesuit Center's views on the budget and economic indicators as they relo- relate to promoting or understanding the plight of the poor in Zambia. She's also been a lecturer in political studies at the University of Zambia and prior to working at the Jesuit Center uh, for Theological Reflection, she was a monitoring and evaluating she's a monitoring and evaluation officer for Afia Missouri, a Zambian NGO that uh, specializes in implementing HIV and AIDS prevention treatment and care programs. So we're very happy to have Tina with us, and we look forward to her presentation.
1: I hope I'm not completely hidden. Yeah. <laughs> Good afternoon. Um, I'm, I think uh, from yesterday, um, the discussion that we had was really interesting. They talked about Africa and how Africa has been affected by the global financial crisis, and I think my role this time is just to add a little bit of detail to what was given yesterday. So um, my presentation is mainly on Africa, Africa's trade and how it has been affected, but then I also look at the conclusion of the Doha Development Round. Um, Just a bit on on how I'm going to proceed, I think you can see it's um, quite rough, but I think uh, that is the map of my presentation. So uh, I think as we know, um, for the past over five years, uh, Africa had been doing very fine, um, its growth averaging about six percent, which was quite something for Africa because, the, some years behind, Africa was really, really doing fine. So after after the implementation of s- structural adjustment programs and other uh, structural reforms like the HIPIC, the Highly Indebted Poor Country Initiative, uh, Africa had gotten back on the track of development, and. Um, we saw some kind of improve, improvement in the, te- in the terms of trade, how the, mo- the goods were moving from one place to the other within the region and also uh, across borders to other developed countries. So for Africa, that was really something. And we also, uh, like other people have mentioned, um, the poverty levels were also improving because, for example, in Zambia, you find that over before the crisis, over 68% of the people of the population of Zambia, which is about um, um, 12 million people now, are, were living in poverty. But then, after the crisis, we see a lot more people getting into poverty. I think 68% of the population is quite huge. Um, now, just going quickly into the impact of the crisis on the growth. Um, I think for Africa, the global economic crisis can be termed as a growth crisis because this crisis has not just affected um, uh, Africa in just general terms, but, but it has affected like, the key drivers of growth. So we're talking about trade, we're talking about capital inflows, natural resources, and natural resources are actually the most important resources for, exchange, for foreign exchange uh, reserves that we get in Africa. So all these have been affected. And um, the, the, according to the Africa Economic Report, uh, the, the growth rate for 2009 is going to be about 2.8% from, from the average of 6%, which is really low. So just uh, looking quickly at these bars that show us how they're trained in, in, in growth rates, you see that in 2007, that was the average, like for the whole of Africa, about 6.1%, then we had five 5.9% uh, in the mid of um, 2008. That, that's after July 2008 when the crisis was just setting in in Africa. So, and then 2009, those are the rates that have been given by the, Afri- the, 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 the Africa Economic Report. And actually, recent revisions actually show that even the 2.8% might not be achieved by the end of this year. It might be slightly lower than that. So, uh, the impact of the crisis on exports, Africa's exports are feared to, to have reduced to, to, by about $250 billion in 2009. So, I just want to give a few examples so that we actually get the idea of what is happening in Africa. So, for example, in Chad and Equatorial Guinea, these are uh, all exporting countries. The, you see the revenues that have fallen some up even over 50% uh, between 2007 and 2008. Sudan also is um, an oil exporting country, which has also been hit hard with uh, revenues expected to, to be lower than 43% in 2009 compared to 2008. And then the other issue is on trade, trade tax revenue, which have also fallen. Um, in in these these different countries. Minerals, for example, in Zambia, the country that I come from, and also the Democratic Republic of Congo, have also fallen, like put together, by about six billion U.S. dollars. And that to Africa is quite an amount. And then another country that has been hit hard is Uganda. I heard someone made reference to this country. Uganda is actually the second leading coffee producer after Ethiopia. It has also already recorded a decline um, by this year, March, of about 34%. So, to many of the Ugandans who are living in poverty, I think that kind of loss is really um, hit them hard. So, after the impact, we also have the consequences. What are some of the consequences of these um, impacts that have hit a lot of African countries? So, for example, in like many other countries in uh, in Africa, you have job losses. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, over 3,000 jobs were lost in just one province where copper is concentrated. Zambia also lost about 50,000 jobs. But then, behind these figures are also families that depend on these people that had been working in these same places. Uh, for example, at the Jesuit Center for Theological Reflection, we we, we used to undertake a survey every month just to assess the, the, the living standards of, um, of people in, in a family of six. So you find that 50, maybe one person would only be, um, those are just on average, one person would be earning an income in a family of six. So if you multiply by maybe six people behind all these 50,000 people, that's a lot. There are a lot of people behind, um, a lot of people getting into poverty, and a lot of people failing to get maybe health facilities and also go- going to school. So, another issue is increased exchange rate volatility, which has hurt not only trade but also growth in Africa. Um, I'll give an example of Zambia. We actually experienced a depreciation of about 27% uh, against the US dollar by the end of 2000. And- it's just in, in a period of one year. So you see that even importing things from different developing, developed countries, like uh, maybe oil that we, like fuel that we depend on, also just to make sure that a lot of things in the country are moving was kind of difficult. And also for the country to, to import uh, important things like, uh, like the HIV, uh, antiretroviral drugs, it was quite difficult for the country to do that because they didn't have enough exchange reserves, foreign exchange reserves. So if you look at the current accounts deficit, uh, those are the figures that are put there for a few countries, Liberia, Burundi, and Djibouti. So you see that um, those are some of the the deficits that have been experienced just within this period between 2007 and 2009, and 2008, sorry. Um, So when we come to the question of what should be done, I think I put down just a few things um, because before I just got to this, I, I also looked at some of the documents that have been produced by the World Bank, which estimates that uh, growth in Africa, for, for, for Africa to actually go back to the pre-crisis growth rates, they will need about, Africa will need about $150 billion just to finance the investment uh, saving gap. So where is that money going to come from? And then to achieve the 7% growth that is required to meet the MDGs, that's the UN Millennium Development Goals targets, Africa would need like, financing. The financing gap will rise to about 117 billion, that is in US dollars. So those are some of the issues that are pending. So uh, with these facts, Africa actually needs support, and that is financial support from developed countries. I think we cannot run away from that fact. Um, then the continent also needs some structural, uh, reforms. For example, in governance, I think um, the, the the presentation that we had from that we heard from Jomary, for me it was quite inspiring. Especially when I heard about um, the citizens getting involved in ensuring that they they hold their governments responsible. I think it's not easy for Africans, but then it has it has to be done because the problem with governance is really huge. So I think there's something that has to be done there. Then um, promoting domestic savings, I think this is also very important. I think uh, Joy, in his in his questions that he posed early, he mentioned that there's need for an em- emphasis in the in in in, in promoting domestic um, uh, accumulation of capital. So I think that is also very important, and it's something that has to be looked at. So we also have. To, also have to increase access to credit. I think a lot of African people want to work, they want to involve themselves in in some kind of entrepreneurship, but then they've got no access to credit. So how are we going to ensure that these people become very important in the process of development in Africa? So access to credit, I think, is very, very important. Diversification of exports, I think for African countries, for a very, very long time, we've relied um, on traditional exports, for example for example, in Zambia, copper, I think we failed to diversify away from copper. So when copper prices on the international market are not doing very fine, then the whole country crumbles to a halt. So there's need for diversification of exports. So just turning a little bit to the Doha round, uh, I think I'll just give a brief background to this. Uh, the Doha development round, was actually uh, formally called the Uruguay Round, which was the f- actually the first agreement on agriculture um, policy reform. And this took place, the negotiations took place between 1988 and 1994. But then the implementation period, periods for developed countries and developing countries were quite different. So developed countries were given a six year period of implementation, whilst the African countries or developing countries were given about 10 years. So to uh, 2001, about 2000, or the implementation period for both uh, for both uh, categories had finished. So um, in 2001, the multilateral um, the multilateral initiate the multilateral countries thought of coming up with the Doha Development Round, which actually emphasized the. Integrate, integrating the developing countries into the world trading system. So this was very important, not only for the developed countries, but also for developing countries. So those were the three pillars that are actually objectives in the objectives in the Doha Development Round. So what has been the problem? Because we want to see whether this Doha Development Round is actually an answer to some of the problems that have been faced in Africa uh, regarding the global economic crisis. I think like most of us know there's been a lack of agreement on targets uh, on timetables and also modalities in which all these the agriculture negotiations especially should go i think there are a lot of components there but there's been a lot of um, there's been a lot of difficulties or lack of agreement on the issue of agriculture and also the non-agriculture and market access issue so you find that the negotiations that took place in 2003 did not, the deadlines that were set by, f- to reach by 2003 could not be met. 2005, 2006, all these de- deadlines were missed because all these countries, the EU, the US, and also developing countries, could not agree on certain targets that had to be met. And the other problem that we see is that developed countries are actually tying their agricultural progress because, for example, in the EU, there's the issue of the common Uh, the common agriculture policy. So this has been the issue that has been hindering progress in the whole process. But then for them to agree on how to move on, it's been quite difficult because for the asking developing countries to also um, give certain offers in the non-agricultural market access, which are quite um, like very tasking for the developed countries. And if you look at them, they'll actually not help the developed countries to actually move on. And actually the issue that has that I, I wanted to look at is the EU agriculture subsidy. So, just going uh, through this one very f- quickly, you find that the EU uh, agriculture subsidy actually talks about how much the EU, the EU gives to its citizens as in, um, in farm subsidies. So, I don't know if I can go through all that. So, you find that the EU pays almost half of its annual budget in agriculture subsidies, which is quite an amount there, and the biggest share like the FarmSubsidy.org, this is a research company that has been doing some research, has, re- has revealed that about 37.5 billion euros actually goes to landowners and uh, farmers who have got like little to do with the traditional farming that that it was initially meant to, to 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 reach. So I just put up a table of some of the some of the people and organisations that have been receiving this agricultural subsidy. So I think one inspiring one is the Queen of England, who has been getting about 473. That, that one is actually in pounds. That was just for 2008. I think all those have been receiving since time immemorial. So you find that these same companies and individuals are very influential when it comes to, to, the, to running the state. And when people these trade negotiators go to negotiate. I think in, in these trade negotiations, the Doha development round and so on, they've got no say, they've got no support from back home f- for them to give certain offers in the, in the negotiations. So it's kind of quite difficult for them to just go on. So that, that one was just some of the comments that I got from people that have been receiving the subsidy. I think from different countries, one of them, the last one just said, Quite frankly, we would we like to, 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 would, would rather receive no subsidies and live entirely off our own produce, but given the price of wheat right now, we could not survive. But then when I just looked at that, I said, how about people in Africa? I think for us to qualify to the HIPIC completion points, there are certain things that we are told not to give our farmers, so we had to give up all that to ensure that we attend the HIPIC. So I think for African countries that has been like stabbing in the, in, in the back, so the Doha for me is a total failure, and it, it, it can't work at all, especially that all these countries don't want to give up their interests. So I think on the suggestions, I would say that fair trade, fair trade negotiations are important and must be supported. So we cannot do away with because we want to trade with each, uh, with, with each other, so we need to trade and we need these trade negotiations. So something has to be done. The platform, I'm not not very sure. So the other thing that I I say is that we need to seek opinions of the EU citizenry, which is who are the taxpayers. I think most of them don't even know where their monies go. So I think maybe the, the Halifax Initiative, in whatever way, they should see how these EU citizens respond to these monies that go to very rich people in their countries. Then uh, civil society organizations, I think those that are interested in ensuring that there's some kind of fair trade need to play a very uh, instrumental role in ensuring, in persuading the national consensus. I think for the development round to actually be successful, there is need for, for the kind of consensus at home before these people can even negotiate at the ministerial level. So thank you for listening. I think this is the end of my presentation.